good morning, church. That's exciting, isn't it, to see uh, folks that are willing to go and serve in that way. I'm especially excited about our young people. They're always setting the example for us about uh, being willing to go wherever God would send them. And I'm really looking forward to hearing reports of how God's going to work through them. As Mike just prayed, my name is uh, Milt Johnson, and today we're going to be continuing in our sermon series that we've entitled Reordered, a sermon that is looking at carefully here the words of Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount. And today we come to chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 7. 21 through 23. Uh, it's been really an exciting week of studying this passage. Somebody said to me, I think you're preaching one of the scariest verses or passages in the Bible. I hope to eliminate some of that fear today, but understand the sobriety of the words of Jesus here. Um, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And again, you know, at one point we were pretty accustomed to taking notes, and I want to encourage you as you're coming in to grab a note sheet, fill out the note sheet, think about these principles. And you can do that now if you don't have one. But let's go ahead and take a look here at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. Let's get the, the big picture here. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mightier wonders uh, in your name? Verse 23, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This, my friends, is the word of our Lord. Let's go ahead and begin to break down this uh, passage verse by verse. I believe that will help us get a clearer picture, understanding what Jesus is wishing for us to understand from this section of his sermon. As Pastor Mike rightly noted last week in the Sunday sermon, he uh, reminded us that this is the end of the sermon. We're wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus is coming to a conclusion, and he's calling his listeners to make a decision. A decision here to turn from false righteousness to turn from false religions and false prophets and to turn to a right relationship with God and to each other and to learn to walk and trust in him as a citizen of his divine kingdom. And that kingdom is so unique. It's not like this world, but of God. And it flips everything. When, as we've been studying this, I hope you've been able to see how it flips upside down and, and, and reorders everything about us if we apply what Jesus has said here. This kingdom this reminds us that a blessed life is, is not found in our self-exaltation, our, our self-proving. Uh, it, it's not validated by how much money we have or how much power or how much influence that we have or anything really that this world has to offer, but rather this blessed life that our Savior wants us to enjoy and to experience. It, it's found in humility it's found in a true thirst and a hunger for God and his righteousness and, and, and living not for ourselves, but to show others mercy and kindness and forgiveness and integrity and peace. And where acts of worship are about how great our God is rather than how great we look 
doing them or performing them. Of all the big choices, as Mike reminded us last week, and I couldn't agree with him more, that we make in life, those crossroads, those defining moments we encounter in life, nothing comes close, I believe, to the choice that Jesus is presenting here before his listeners and to all of us today. And really, it's a question of whose kingdom are you going to live for? Are we going to live for his kingdom? Or are we going to live for ours? Let's talk about that some today. Some of you might be questioning or thinking, well, what in the world would keep us, a person, from entering into that kingdom, from accepting this gracious invitation that God has given us through his son? One very possible answer are the false teachers, the false prophets, who we've been studying for the last couple of weeks, who bring a message that may cause a person to remain on that broad, wrong pathway that we've seen for the last couple of weeks. That's why in verse 15, we find Jesus admonishing his listeners, beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are, are wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. But in addition to these false prophets, it really occurred to me this week that another potential reason that so many people miss out, they reject this invitation to God's kingdom. And I believe it's even more sinister and more uh, malignant, it's the problem of what I consider self-deception or self-delusion. It's one thing, you see, for someone to tell us a lie. It's another, quite another, for us to tell ourselves lies, to be captured in our own lies. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that'll never happen to me. But as I dug into the scriptures this last week, I realized how many times the scriptures warn us and speak us to us about deceiving ourselves and how so much easier it is to do than, than probably most of us think. For example, in, in James chapter 1, verse 22, we are commanded, but be doers of the word, not hearers only. Listen, deceiving ourselves. We can sit week after week, year after year, listening to the word of God preached without it changing us. And James says when we do that, we are self-deceived. When we read the Bible from cover to cover, and yet we, we don't put into practice those commands, we, the Bible says, are deceiving ourselves. Likewise, as I looked at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, we are warned that if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And John is saying how foolish it is, how foolish it is to justify our sin instead of allowing the truth of God's word to convict us of that sin and lead us to genuine repentance and confession. Self-deception can also occur in relation to our spiritual condition as shown in the church of Laodicea and Revelation. Remember this lukewarm church? Um, they had convinced themselves that the, everything was a-okay. They had it all together. But Jesus, who always speaks the truth, set them straight, saying in Revelation 3, verse 17, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I have need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, when it comes to the reception of this invitation to the gospel, this message, I believe that people can fall into three broad categories. Of course, there are the believer, 
we accept this invitation and we put our trust in Jesus. There are, of course, those who would reject this message, and they're non-believers, they're non-Christians. But there's another category that I don't think we think about a whole lot, but I think Jesus is very clearly pointing to here, and that's the make-believers. There are many make-believers, Jesus warns. Now, what is a make-believer? When our kids were in high school, in the later years, it was considered one of the biggest offenses, as I recall, to be called a poser. I had no idea what that was, but my kids explained it to me. This is when, uh, when you try to be someone that you're not in an effort to impress others. For example, if a guy claimed to be a jock, even dressed like a jock, walked like a jock, but he had no, zero athletic skills or abilities, he was called a poser. And as I look at the words of Jesus here, sadly, there are posers not just walking the hallways of high schools and junior highs, but walking in God's church. There are some posers who have crept into the church pretending to be Christians. These make-believers, often they, they make verbal commitments or professions to Jesus. They talk the talk, they speak the words, but they do not in the bottom line, genuinely possess a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the first characteristic, if you are taking notes today, that I want to point out. Make-believers, you see, have chosen a saved appearance rather than a saved heart. They have chosen a saved appearance rather than a cho uh, chosen a saved heart. They care far more about their status in the eyes of the church or their family or their friends or Christian organizations and the status through the eyes of a holy and righteous God. Some, for example, I think uh, attempt to fit in. They, they, you know, they just, the peer pressure is intent. But others often just lack the knowledge or the understanding. But whatever the reason is, if you can read verse 21 here without sending a shiver up your back. I don't know who you are. I don't know how you can do that because look at the warning, the sobering and strong warning that Jesus himself makes to make believers in verse 21. Not everyone, Jesus says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, in the context of what we're looking here at the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to consider for a moment that uh, how outrageous this statement would have sounded to Jesus' listeners in that day. Here we find Jesus referring to himself as a master for the very first time in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has not only just placed himself into the sermon, physically into the sermon, but he has also made it clear to his listeners that their entrance into heaven solely depends upon him. That's quite a bold claim, isn't it? Many had, in, in the church today, we've become accustomed to this bold claim of Jesus in the New Testament church. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father. But in that daytime, uh, in that day of Jesus' uh, time here, these instructions, I can assure you, would have been unlike anything his listeners have ever heard. And that's, uh, that's partly why I think when we get down to verse 28, when we're told that when Jesus finished his presentation here or his sayings that the people the crowds it said were astonished they were shocked at his teaching it was it was amazing reading on in verse 22 Jesus goes on to add some additional information here on that day he says many will say Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name 
and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. Now, let me stop here. I think we, we need to stop here, and I need to, I think for us to understand and properly apply this text, we need to make a few important observations, okay? First thing, we need to understand that in the Bible, it speaks of two great future judgments, two future judgments. After Christ returns to earth, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, all of the non-believers worldwide, great and small, will stand before Jesus in what is called the great white throne. Non-believers judgment, okay? There's another judgment in scriptures called the Bema Seat that you can read about in 2 Corinthians 5.10, and I provided that on the note sheet. This judgment is for believers only, and praise God there before Jesus at the Bema Seat, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, those who are in Jesus Christ will suffer absolutely no condemnation. Praise God for that. None. Zero. Believers will, however, be judged and rewarded according to their faithfulness in following and obeying and serving Jesus as Lord. Okay? Now, that being noted, as I think about these observations here, the reference here in Matthew chapter 7, I would submit to you today, is a reference to the great white throne judgment. On that day, a judgment, again, Christ will summon from the graves and from the sea all who have died without ever putting their trust in Jesus. Their souls will rise from death and Hades to stand before him, and they will give an account to, to Jesus of their lives. And sadly, according to the scriptures, for their rejection in Christ as their Savior, these unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire along with the devil and, uh, and who had deceived him here. Okay, that's the first thing. There are two judgments. This judgment, I believe, is a reference to the great white throne. Second, you can't help but read and notice the double Lord, Lord. I hope you saw that. It certainly caught my attention. And, and then we can find it here in verses 21 and 22. And I believe this is implying a master or a, a sovereignty, um, someone holding authority over them. Now, understand, Jesus is not saying it is wrong to say Lord, Lord. I mean, it's totally appropriate. However, this profession in and of itself, if it isn't flowing from a heart that is, uh, that is genuinely um, uh, believing and trusting in Jesus Christ and, 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 and in obedience to his will, then it's, it's not sufficient. Um, to see what I mean, look at verse 21 here and notice that Jesus includes the thought that only those who do the will of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, wait a minute, you're saying, Mel... Does that mean that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus plus works? Absolutely not. Make that abundantly clear. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, when he says, by grace we have been saved through faith, and it is not of our own doing. It is a gift, a free gift of God. It is not your own doing, right? Not as a result of works, verse 9 says, so that no one will boast. I love verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Of course, from this passage, we're able to derive that biblical principle that we are not saved by our good works, but God saves us for good works, okay? Yes, good works are important in the life of every believer. In fact, they are what we are designed to do. But hear me clearly. They are not the basis of our lives, nor the cause of our salvation. 
These works were prepared beforehand by God that we walk in them. And as we walk in them, we reflect the new creation that we are in Jesus Christ, that we belong to him. And here's the thing that we need to understand. Our ability to walk in even these and perform these works is only possible because the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, in our lives. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16, Paul says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, I love this, of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, don't miss this, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so when we place our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he comes into our heart, begins a lifelong process of changing and transforming us and helping us from the inside out to begin to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ, which I will add, based on what we just read, is an evidence, one evidence of our profession in Jesus Christ being real or genuine. And that's my third application if you're taking notes here. We give evidence that we know Jesus Christ by our obedience to his will. Now, wait a minute, you say, let's look at verse 21. I think it brings incredible clarity to what Jesus is saying here about what it means to walk in the will of God. In chapter 6 of, of the Gospel of John, one of my favorite passages, uh, Jesus has just fed a multitude of people with only a few loaves and a few fishes. And after experiencing this amazing miracle, the people immediately wanted to make Jesus their king. But Jesus refused their request, saying, starting in verse 6 of chapter, I'll put it up on behind me on the screens, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You got it wrong, Jesus said. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, don't miss this, God the Father has set his seal. In response, the people go, okay, Jesus, what must we do? Verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In verse 29, Jesus answered them saying, this is the work of God. That, listen, verse 29, that you believe in him, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Observe carefully here that Jesus doesn't say, well, you have to go to church or you have to read a book or you have to follow me on Twitter or anything of that kind. Jesus says here the work of God is that we believe in him whom God has sent. And clearly the people who were listening to Jesus that day knew that he was speaking about himself for in verse 30 he goes on to say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? And I love Jesus' response. It is amazing here, very very clear. Brings a lot of connection here to what he's saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice, please, how after explaining that he is the bread of life come down from heaven in verses 39 and 40, Jesus declares, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And look at the promise, the guarantee, I will raise him up on the last day. The Father's will, because Jesus here, is that we believe in Jesus whom he sent, that we place our faith and our trust in Jesus and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. 
In other words, uh, doing God's will is not merely external compliance to a bunch of rules and regulations. It's an eternal matter, internal matter. It's a matter of the heart, a relationship with him that matters. From God's perspective, it is the heart that determines our destiny, not appearance, our activities. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. From God's perspective, it is the heart that determines our destiny, not appearance, our activity. It is the heart that God sees. And somebody told me this years ago, and I wrote it in my Bible. But uh, here's a phrase that I've written down, and I'll share it with you. While we can fool all the people some of the time, and some of the people all of the time, we can never fool the Lord at any time. Powerful statement. And that brings me forth, a fourth application, so important, because I believe a lot of people believe this. Performing impressive deeds does not prove we deserve heaven. Performing impressive deeds does not prove we deserve heaven. I love this passage. It's both frightening and, and, and amazing to me. Here standing before Christ at the judgment, obviously shocked by the rejection of Jesus into heaven here, I find it fascinating that according to verse 22, these make-believers, and I'm paraphrasing here, declare, Hey, Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? Hey, Jesus, did we not cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do many wonderful or mighty works and miracles in your name? Three important observations here, I think, to help us understand here. First, I want you to understand, preaching, casting out demons, performing miracles are indeed great things. And I find it amazing. Second, they seem to be no denial here by Jesus that they had indeed performed these wonderful things in his name. And because of these things, I want you to see that these make-believers, third, fully expected, almost with an entitlement mentality, expected to be accepted by Jesus in welcome arms into the kingdom of heaven. You might be wondering, as I did, wait a minute. Is it really possible that these mighty deeds could be performed in the name of Jesus by people who don't even know him? Not only, folks, is it possible, but Jesus warns it's very probable. Let me remind you that probably very likely Judas Iscariot performed many of these supernatural signs and wonders, but in the end, it turned out that he was not a person who possessed a genuine relationship with Jesus. The bottom line is this. No amount of good works or mighty deeds could ever get us into heaven. No amount of good works or mighty deeds could ever get us into heaven. And yet that's precisely, I think, what many make-believers often foolishly believe or think. And that's my second characteristic here of a make-believer. As I look at this text, make-believers appeal to what they have done, what they have done for Jesus rather than what Jesus has done for them. Make believers appeal to what they have done for Jesus rather than what Jesus has done for them. And that's why, gosh, these awful words in verse 23 appear of Jesus. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's true that they had prophesied cast out demons, and did mighty deeds. But in the end of all of it, Jesus said, I never knew you. You never knew me. You were never a true follower of Christ. What a dreadful, dreadful pronouncement and shock that, must, that will be. Imagine eternal banishment. Uh, turn out the lights, the party's over. There is no mulligans here. 
eternal banishment from, from Christ's presence, no zero options for relief or reprieve from this judgment that Christ has made. And with all my heart as a pastor here at Chantilly Bible Church, I pray that no one, absolutely no one in this room will hear those words. That's one of the main reasons here at Chantilly Bible Church, our preaching and our philosophy of ministry is gospel-centered. We're not about playing church. Our, our making comfortable experience and appeals to, uh, to all our preferences. Instead, we take the, the, the word of Jesus very seriously, and, and, and we truly, as Mike mentioned a moment ago, want to make true disciples of Christ who know him and genuinely serve him. For that to become a reality, we know that we must faithfully and lovingly seek to teach the whole counsel of God, which includes difficult passages like that. I would have loved to jump right. Hey, let me tell you about the man who built his house on the sand and this other man who built his house. Skip right over this. But I couldn't do that and faithfully do what I believe God wants me to be doing as one of your pastors. And we must, as pastors of the gospel, teachers of the gospel, call on all of us, ourselves included, to trust and obedience to the truth of all that Christ is and all that he has done for us and all that he is calling us to do. So let's talk a little bit. What does the Bible say about how we can have an assurance that we will be received by Jesus into heaven? As I thought about this point, the passage that came to my heart and my mind was 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 and 4. I realize that my slide is wrong. Some of you will tell me that. Uh, I put two threes, I think, in a second here. But it's clearly here, Paul is defining the gospel by which we are saved. And in contrast to these words of the make-believers here in Matthew 7, 22, who said, Jesus, we, we did this, and Jesus, we did that. I love what Paul says here about what Jesus did for us. Look at verse 3. For I deliver to you at first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared. I love to personalize this. Put it up on the screen here in just a minute, but Jesus loved me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose from the dead for me, and then he appeared for me. I could add there too. Would you say those for me, if you believe those? Jesus loved me. Jesus died for me. He rose from the dead for me, and then he appeared. When I was a young boy, I didn't grow up in a, a solid Christian home, and I went to church a lot by myself. And I had tremendous doubts about and fears about whether, whether I would die and whether I would go to heaven. I put my trust in Christ when I was only six in my Sunday school class. And I remember one day going forward in my church service to put my trust in Jesus for probably the 150th time. Every time somebody said, you need to get saved, I was running forward and getting saved. And the man who prayed with me that day reminded me of the words of Romans 5, 8, and he personalized just what I did in the passage here, in, uh, in, in, instead of uh, 1 Corinthians, he did it in Romans. Here's what he personalized saying, hey, hey, son, he was an older guy, God demonstrated his own love toward, and he wanted me to say me, in that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And that's when I think I finally realized I was probably about eight or nine, ten years old, 
how much God really loved me. Because even as a young boy, I knew, I knew how unworthy I was to be given such a priceless gift. I, I was blown away by the promise that Jesus was willing to come into my heart and into my life, forgive me, save me, and change me, knowing who I was. And it was at this time that I think I finally realized that when I stand before Jesus, that it's only my relationship with Jesus Christ, my acceptance of him fully as my Savior, nothing else that, I, that will matter. And today I stand before you as someone who, like Jonathan Edwards once said, I, Milt Johnson, contribute absolutely nothing to my salvation except the sin that made it necessary. How about you? Do you know Jesus? Are you walking in obedience with him and devotion to him, but most importantly, with your full faith resting in him and nothing else? As I think about my relationship to Christ and my future home, I love the words of Augustus top lady. I can't laugh. I have to laugh every time I read that name. Thank goodness I wasn't born Augustus top lady. But, but when he wrote the old hymn, Rock of Ages, Matt pointed this out in our teaching team, and it just sunk into my heart. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand, or your hand, we bring, simply to is, is that the cry of your heart today? I mean, genuinely in your heart? You know, in closing, I got to tell you, I would agree with the person who said to me, as we were, I think you're teaching one of the most difficult passages. But really, what I find, it's not hard to teach. It's hard for us to hear. The message here is hard. It's humbling. It's sobering for us to hear. But I, I walked away after I studied this text this week, not fearing, not scared because I know I put my trust fully in Jesus. I do hope, I do hope that this message today will prompt all of us to do a heart check, to be sure that we're truly, myself included, in the family of God. To do as 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Folks, on the day of judgment, it's only, I can't say this enough, it is only your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, your acceptance of him as your savior that will truly matter. And so I hope today that if you're sitting here, nothing breaks my heart and frightens me more in the text here than to think I pastored a church with people that have sat here week after week, heard the gospel, heard the word of God, but it's never moved from here to here. Nothing breaks my heart more. And I believe, I gotta believe there's someone here that may be struggling as a make-believer. I wanna challenge you today if the spirit of God is speaking to your heart to put your trust in Jesus. If you want to do that, everyone bow your head for just a minute. I rarely do this, but I really feel led of the Lord to do this. If you want to pray that prayer, repeat after me and mean it from your heart. Father in heaven, I know and I acknowledge that you are holy and I am a sinner. I know that I need a savior. 
that I cannot save myself. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to die in my place and for my sins. Father, with all my heart, I want to trust in him and him alone to save me today. Come into my life. Help me, Lord, to glorify and please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, if you've prayed that prayer, and I want to put the emphasis not on the prayer, but on, your, on the emphasis of putting your trust in Jesus Christ, um, I'd love to talk to you. There'll be people up here at the end of the service who would love to pray with you, maybe help you get some resources to help you on this uh, new journey that you're on. If you're still wrestling with that or you have questions, there'll be people up here, male and female both, that will be willing to help answer those questions and try to help you understand what it means to follow Jesus. Thank you. Lord bless you all.